Ephesians chapter 4. Before I begin, I say that I'm always thankful for the opportunity to speak for this pulpit and the opportunity to sit under the teaching of a well-qualified pastor and then to consult with him uh, week by week on how to strengthen the effort and the labor of the gospel in this church and to grow together with him and have the opportunity once in a while to pinch hit for him from the pulpit is something very valuable to me and I'm um, appreciative of it. Turn with me, if you would, like I said, to Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to go ahead and read uh, maybe the first um, 20 or 25 verses of Ephesians chapter 4. Let me read, I'll tell you our objectives, and then we'll pray. Paul, right, in the Ephesians, he says, I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace is given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, and to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is man, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. And each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through the deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. 25 of your listeners. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Okay, I'll tell you my objectives. Um, with, with a book like Ephesians, Paul's logic, the way Paul, one of the most educated uh, men who, of his time period, well-educated, a great thinker, knew the Hebrew scriptures and the Greek uh, philosophers, and the way he develops his logic is that he does point upon point upon point upon point. And so Ephesians, when you preach the book of Ephesians, you've got to take a chunk of it at a time. You've got to take a paragraph. You've got to take a chapter because you don't get the flow of Paul's thought. And so we would miss what Paul teaches about the church if we were to take a snippet of Ephesians. And so I want to cover some ground today. I want to cover maybe the first 25 verses of Ephesians and break them up into little packets that we'll be able to uh, 
understand and digest. So my three objectives this morning are this, that I want you to find the church's essence. So we're asking the question, what is the church? And then second, I want to talk about the church's function. I want to describe the church's function for you. What does the church do? And then lastly, the most controversial part about this is that I want to defend the idea of church membership as being a biblical concept. And so I want to say, if what Paul says, if, if, I'm, if I'm reading Paul correctly in what he says the church is and what the church does, then I want to say that the logical next step, what that, where that leads us to logically, is the idea of church membership. But I want to be careful of the tone in which I want to do it. I don't want to look at our church and the circumstances of it and the um, composition of people and say, well, you know, like, members, good, non-members, bad. That's absolutely not what I'm doing. What I would like to do, though, is that I would like to begin that dialogue. I would like us to begin that conversation where you might look at me and you might say, hey, you know, those were compelling points that you made. I'm still not entirely convinced of that, but I will take into consideration what you say. And so that's the way that I want it to be heard this morning. This is not a a message with any intention of condemning or judging or any of that. So we're defining the church's essence, we're describing the church's function, and then we're defending the idea of church membership. So the first two steps, it's got to be essential that I do those correctly because the idea of church membership is built on those first two steps. So would you pray with me as we begin? Okay, Our gracious God and Father, thank you for this church and for allowing it to be founded and having sustained it for as long as you have. And and Lord, we um, implore you that um, you would sustain it um, as many generations there are um, until Christ comes. Would you strengthen it? Would you help it? Would you help us to uh, love it and to represent it well? And may the light of the gospel always go forth from this place. I pray that you help me to speak clearly and accurately. Don't leave me up here by myself to my own devices, but help me to accurately portray what Ephesians says and then um, use reason and wisdom to argue persuasively for the doctrine of church membership. I pray that this would be uh, just a sweet and nourishing and encouraging time for all of us, and I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, scripture starts off, Paul starts off, therefore, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And you might know this, but whenever you see the word therefore in scripture, the word therefore is a connecting Word. What it says is that the concept that just came before this idea and the concept that comes after it are linked. They are dependent on one another. It would, it would be like me saying, I like Apple products, therefore I got an iPhone. So if I came to you and I said, therefore I got an iPhone, you would want to know what the clause was right before that. Does that make sense? Right? That's just basic grammar. Therefore, So when we see the word therefore in scripture, we have to ask, what is Paul referring to? He said something, and then he says in chapter 4, therefore, I'm going to tell you this other thing. And so if you look in chapter 3, and if you don't um, have it with you, I'll, I'll read it for you. I don't have that part printed in your bulletin. He's praying for the people, and he's giving a benediction on the church of the Ephesians. So he says to them, in his prayer, he says that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the depth and the height and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Then he gives the benediction, verses 20 and 21 of chapter 3. He says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. 
That's a pretty intense, weighty prayer. There's a lot of it, and I want to break it down for you. Let us imagine that Paul was praying that for our church. Let's say he's praying that for Woodside as individual believers and as a church. He's basically saying, in essence, and let me substitute in the names, he's saying, Lord, because of your glorious riches, please grant that Edwin and Eloisa's family is strengthened with your power, not just on the outside, but on the inside. He's saying, Lord, please grant that the presence of Jesus Christ would be in the heart of Menzie and Elaine as they walk in faith. He's saying, Lord, may the Whithauer family be steadfast and stable in love so that they may know the magnitude of your love, which is beyond anything that we can imagine. He's saying, Lord, may our teenagers be filled with your fullness so that the world's counterfeits such as popularity and sex and rebellion, do not control their lives. That's the essence of his prayer. So he prays these sort of things for them, saying, may you inwardly be strengthened so that you may experience Christ's presence, so that you may know his love, so that you are filled with his fullness. It's this progressive prayer. And if if he was praying that for us, that's the way it would sound as I uh, modified it um, in what I just read. And then he has this benediction. He says, uh, a benediction is a blessing. It's a prayer to God um, in behalf of the people. He says, now to him. So he's prayed this prayer and he says, now I entrust it to him who can do more than we can ask or think. And to him be glory um, in the church and in Christ throughout all generations. So he prays these blessings upon the people and he gives this benediction for the people, and then he begins chapter four. So he has prayed these things, like may they be strengthened inwardly, may they know Christ's love, may they um, walk with him, may they be filled with his fullness, and God can do it, God can do above all that we ask or think, and chapter four, now therefore I urge you to walk in a manner worthy um, of the calling with which you have been called. I want you to notice in two of those verses, verse 1 and verse 4 of chapter 4, he uses the word calling twice. And so let me read those for you. Verse 1, he says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So twice, walk worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Paul, that's a little bit repetitive. Where is your English teacher? Right? Um, Verse 3, he says, there is one body in one spirit, just as you were called to the hope that belongs to your call. Now, he said it four times, right? If Paul was writing an English paper, there would be red lines over it, and the professor would say, this is repetitive, right? Anyone ever had an English paper which just came back with a bunch of red lines, and you thought it was really good? And it was miserable, and your teacher said, you're redundant, and Paul is redundant. But he does that. Biblical writers do that. They'll emphasize a word over and over and over and over again because it's important for you to get the concept that they're, they're trying to convey. And it's very fitting that he would use the word called and calling over and over and over again because... The Greek word for calling, it's the same root word for the church. Because as you may know, the word church is a group, an assembly, a body that is called out of one thing and called into something else. And we're called out of darkness and called into light. We are called out of the world and into the kingdom of Christ. And so... He basically, when he says the word church, they would hear it as called out group. People who are called out. The assembly that is called out. And so he ends his benediction. May God have glory in the church throughout all generations. And then he says, I therefore urge you to walk worthy of your calling. And so a Greek hearer would hear the word called over and over and over and over because he's making a point. He says that the point that he's making is that the church is something that is called out of the world and they're called into something else. And if we could define it like this, I'll give you a few points, right? It's kind of hard to nail down a definition of the church, but some things that go along with the definition of the church are these, that the church is an assembly of individuals 
that they are called out of the world and out of their former lives, and they are called into a new calling in Christ, a new vocation, a new objective, a new outlook, a new perspective. Those are all similar words. They are marked with humility, gentleness, patience, and love. They are individuals who are called into unity. As 1 Corinthians told us in our scripture reading, that there's, you know, the church is composed of Greek and slave and Jew and Gentile and and old and young and, and all this whole mass of people, but they're one body. So it's individuals that are called into unity. And that unity is based on a similar faith, as Paul tells us in verse 5, that the basis for this, like what we are, the basis for it is you're called into one body and one spirit, just as you were called into one hope that belongs to your calling. Um, One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So their unity is based on a similarity of belief. And then I want to talk about, as, as we continue saying, what is, what is the church? I want to look at the organizational structure or makeup of the church. And when I preached earlier this year, we, we, we covered a lot about the elders of the church as we were in, in a pastoral search process. And we talked a lot about um, what the elder is and what the elder does and mu- the multiplicity of, of elders and so on and so forth. But we want to look at verse uh, 11. It says, talking about the, the, the gifts and how Christ equipped the church, he says, or verse 11, he gave the apostles and the, the prophets, the evangelists, and the uh, shepherds or the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So uh, Paul tells us that the church, the New Testament church, is built upon the teaching of the, um, the foundational teaching of the apostles. And there's prophets, there's evangelists, and there's pastors and teachers that sustain the church throughout the ages. Those um, men, those equipped men, are a gift that God gives to his people so that we might walk in our calling, so that we might be enabled and helped along in the process of walking in accordance with our calling as Christians. And so why? Why why do we need apostles and prophets and pastors and teachers? Why, Why do we hire a pastor? Verse 12 tells us, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So he says, okay, he's, God's given you all these gifts, you know, first apostles and prophets, then there's evangelists, pastors, teachers. Why? Paul, why do we need these guys? He says, verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. And there's a progression with which Paul speaks. So he says, okay, You need shepherds, evangelists, teachers, right, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood and to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Basically, his argument is like this. He uses a lot of words to um, get there, to make this argument. But the question would be, okay, why do we need the teaching ministry of a pastor? Paul would say, to equip the saints for ministry. That's, that's us, right? And so we, um, we, we have to understand that ministry is something that we each do. And we are equipped and we are enabled in that process through the teaching ministry of a qualified pastor. Why do we need equipping? Paul, okay, you tell us to be equipped. Why do we need to be equipped? And he answers, for the building up of the body, for the strength and the health of the church. And we could ask, well, Paul, why do you want us to be built up? And he says, um, at the end of this progression, so that we can um, attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. And if we just take those clauses just as they are, can any of us say with perfect self-assurance that we are 
that you as an individual Christian are you know, 100% unified in the faith with your fellow believers. I couldn't say that. Or could you say, he says that the purpose of this is the knowledge of the Son of God into mature manhood or spiritual maturity. Can, can any of us say 100% with self-assurance say, hey, you know, I, I understand and know Jesus Christ perfectly um, and I, I, I'm completely spiritually mature. No, none of us will ever come to that place until, you know, the Lord completely redeems us and glorifies us um, and his kingdom uh, arrives, right? And so until then, this process is always going to be going on, you know, church after church, generation after generation, because we, God wants us to attain to that, always be striving for that, the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, which none of us, if we're honest, like have that in the perfection and the measure that we should. So this is all so that we can have spiritual maturity, so that we can experience the fullness of Christ, he writes, rather than, he says, this is what I don't want for you. He says, verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes, right? As Paul says, so that this doesn't happen to you, so that you're not victimized and oppressed by spiritual confusion, and that's why you need spiritual maturity. So there's an, a progression to his argument, and just to reiterate it for you, he says, okay, you need, the ministry, you need qualified teaching ministry in your church. Why? Because you need to be equipped for the ministry. Why do we need to be equipped? So that the body could be built up. Why do we want to build, build up the body so that we can attain spiritual maturity and a accurate knowledge of Jesus Christ? That's what we're going for because we don't want spiritual confusion. So that's part one. What is the church? Now, the church's function, now we already touched a little bit on that. There's some overlap here. But verse 15 is just a good verse about the church's function. Look at verse 15. It says, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Okay, it says, Rather, you're to grow into Christ-likeness. And the way you do this, he says, how? Verse 15 says, By speaking the truth to one another in love, you are to grow into Christ-likeness. Anyone ever watch American Idol? No? Okay. You're, you're allowed to admit it. This is, a safe, this is a safe place to say I watch American Idol. Now, I haven't watched American Idol in a long time, but the, it's it just kind of like every season's sort of the same. And American Idol, if you don't know, it's the show where people who uh, want to launch their uh, singing career will go on the show and the judges will, uh, you know, judge them and then they'll go on to the next round until, you know, week after week after week until there's two people left, and then one of them will win and they get this contract, right, this music contract to pursue their dream. And if you watch the first few shows of American Idol, what they do is that they go from city to city and people gather and they stand online for hours so that they can have a shot at auditioning um, before the judges of American Idol. And some of those people are very, very good, but some of those people are just Horrible, and, and, and if I went on American Idol, I would be one of those horrible people. That's why I wouldn't go on American Idol. But it's interesting to see the reaction of people on American Idol, because what will happen is that a person will, will come, they'll sing, they will be horrible, they will be horrendous, they will be an embarrassment. And, and uh, you know, the judges will vote them down. The judges will say, you don't have any shot of getting that music career ever, ever, ever. Like, it's not going to happen. Go home. Like, go back to school or something, something right? Um, and then they'll be interviewed later, right? The interviewer will interview them. How do you feel about what the judges said? And they'll be crying and they'll be frustrated and they'll be upset. And they'll say, I don't care what that judge says. I'm going to make it. I'm going to pursue my dream. And we're all watching at home. You know, half of America is watching saying that person just has no clue how horrible they were. And, and I want to suggest where that comes from. What, why do people get up there, make a fool of themselves on American Idol, and then say, well, I'm, I know I'm good. I'm going to get my dream. I would say part of that is that no one has spoken the truth to them. Is that when they're there, hanging out with their friends, 
at the workplace or at school or in their family and saying, hey, mother or brother or father, like I have this song, listen to me, sing it. They're all saying, hey, you're, you're really good. Like you can be an American Idol. Giving them that false hope and that false encouragement. And, and I think that that's a good illustration of what this verse is, is not. Because if those people had people speaking the truth to them throughout their lives, they would have a realistic evaluation of what they were and what their abilities were. And so use that illustration to help you think about this verse, that the idea of speaking the truth to one another. It's an obligation that we all have within the church and it's something beyond just if someone asks me a question, don't lie to them, right? If uh, they say, hey, where's the bathroom? I don't, I don't point them that way. I say, it's back there. Right? It's something beyond just don't lie to people. It's nourish them and equip them with the word of God. Like, let that be proclaimed in your church, um, in your relationships, one-on-one with individuals, from your pulpit, in your music, let the truth be proclaimed. And when the truth is proclaimed, then we grow into Christ's likeness. And if the objective is growth into Christ's likeness, then the church must be a body where the truth is spoken and ministered to one another so that we can grow. And Paul says, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head. Right? We're to grow into Christ-likeness, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. It's kind of a hard uh, package of verses to understand. He's basically saying, um, okay, you're to grow, you speak the truth so that you can grow into Christ-likeness, and... <clears throat> When every part of the body is functioning, um, the body is able to be built up. As each part works properly, recognizing Christ as our head, then the body can be built up in love. And I would illustrate it like this. That every person in the body has something that the other person needs. If I could be very, very practical, I would say, in their life, Jim and Juliet have something that I need. And some, someone else on that side of the room might have something that they need, right? But what I need from them is not a physical thing. So I can't go to Jim and Juliet and say, hey, the thing that I need for my spiritual growth, give it to me because it's not something that they have in their wallet or their purse or it's not something tangible. But it's something that I can attain as they are walking with the Lord and as I am walking with the Lord, and we are in community with one another. Right? That, that's a good interpretation of verse 16. Is, is it not? That every part you know, that's held together, um, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And if you translate it into people, that's, that's what you get. That this person has what you need and someone else has what, what, um, you, know, what you have, but they need it. And the only way to actually attain it from one another is if each person is walking with the Lord and then each person is in community with each other. So if the body, their vertical alignment is correct, their relationship with the Lord, and their horizontal alignment, their relationship with one another is correct, then you're getting what Paul says the church is and does and needs. So I can get from them what I need as they remain connected to the Lord and to me, and as I remain connected to the Lord and to them, I can receive it. And so Paul defines some of that. What what does that look like in in your life? Putting off the old life and walking in the newness of life, and then we have the one another passages at at the end of that. It's I like the illustration of the body, right? Because like everyone has these claims that they say, well, Bible's not very scientific. But, but if you think of it, man, what a good illustration to use the, the body and how the parts of the body are all contingent and necessary in the system of the body. And so you think of something like the cardiopulmonary system, whereby the body pumps blood, oxygenates blood and pumps it throughout the body at the same time. So you take in um, a breath 
voluntarily or involuntarily through your nose and your mouth goes down your trachea into your lungs and your lungs have the special capacity within them to transfer oxygen to the red blood cells which 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 are there and then it's carried throughout your body through the work of the heart and I've explained it very very simply in 30 seconds but it is massively complex with lots of of parts involuntary reactions of your body that keep it going and when one part does not work in sync with the rest of it the body is out of whack there's illness there's disease um, there's damage as a result and fatality sometimes as well if the parts of the body don't work in sync with one another so that's the function of the church and finally, I want to defend the idea of church membership as a biblical concept. And I want to do that in a way that if, if you're not a member um, here or elsewhere and with no interest to do so at any time, I want to sort of convince you and persuade you or at least begin that discussion where you can go to me afterwards and say, hey, that was compelling, that was good, I'm not entirely convinced, but you've began the dialogue. When I was a young Christian, I was a kind of Christian that sort of had this like rigid, narrow-minded arrogance about him. I was a perfect, independent, Baptist, fundamentalist, no offense if you are one of those. But, but, and and I'll, give you, I'll give you an example of that. I used to be the kind of Christian that when someone had an idea that I didn't like or I opposed or wanted to be arrogant towards, I would say, well, show me that in the Bible. And some of you remember that about me, maybe, right? Like, I, I would be the kind of Christian who had that attitude that said, well, where's tithing in the New Testament? It's not biblical. Or I would say, well, where's Sunday school in the New Testament? And hopefully, you know, that's something that the Lord has increasingly delivered me from, because I think that there's an arrogance and a narrow-mindedness that goes along with that. And I used to be, at some points in my life, where I'd say, well, church is not essential. Church is not important. Well, I can go to Starbucks and have a cup of coffee and read my Bible, and it's the same thing, right? Spiritual growth comes from that, and that is dead wrong. And, and it's tragic that um, evangelicals are going in that direction, where, say, the church is not important. In fact... I graduated from a Bible college, and a lot of my friends, a lot of my close friends would say, well, church membership is not essential. It's not biblical. And to them and to us, like, let me present um, why I think it's important and beautiful and necessary and biblical. And so I have two goals as I present this. Number one, it's to... in. Um, invite non-members to consider membership. And, and some people, you know, just waiting to be asked, right? And so this is the blanket sermon whereby we say, you are being asked and welcomed and invited. And within a few weeks, uh, let's just get through that business meeting and International Sunday, and we'll be launching, uh, you know, our first membership class. And so you are Invite it. Mark that. And put that in your mind. Mark it on your calendars. I don't know exactly when it is, but, but it's coming up. And then I want to encourage members to remember and realize the beauty and the importance of what we are as a body, as a local church, and what church membership means and it ought to mean to you. So, uh, first, if, if I've defended or demonstrated or... or uh, exposited um, Ephesians and the basics of it and got the basics right and communicated them clearly, we could agree that we are, you are, the church is a called out people. That's all of, all Christians there are called out people, called out of their former lives into a new calling in Christ's kingdom. Um, that the other people around you, the other believers around you, are also called out of the world and into Christ's kingdom, and they affirm the same beliefs as you, so that you are not just an individual Christian trying to live your individual 
uh, life, but there's a community of believers around you. And Paul says that this is a sufficient basis to be a local body. If you're uh, people who affirm the same things, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, that you're all in agreement on that. Um, And he says that the body has parts and obligations and responsibilities to one another so that we all might grow. And if that is true, then I want to say that the concept of church as it is used in Ephesians and throughout the Bible is something more than just the place that you go to on Sunday morning. The concept of church is used in the Bible in a way that is far deeper and more profound than just a building that you go to on a Sunday morning to practice religious obligations. Now, the church is not less than that, but it is far more than that. And in fact, from Ephesians 4, we can see that the church is more than the place that we go. Rather, it is what we are and who we are, and it is something that we belong to. And so, I would say church membership is the logical outflow of that. Here's why. Because church membership is that public step, that public affirmation, whereby I, at the age of 18, I said, came here, um, you know, was baptized previous to that. Um, Pastor Rose interviewed me before the congregation, and some of you remember that. That was probably, you know, 13, 14 years ago, and I left the room, and you might have had discussion and voted um, to have me as part of this church. And doing that was my public affirmation, my public step of saying that Woodside means more to me than a place that I'm going to come to on Sundays. It is a place that I desire to belong to if you will have me. Secondly, we can see from Paul's teaching on the church that it is made up of others. And church membership is that public step, that public affirmation that I made, you know, 14 years ago at the age of 18, that we recognize that spiritual growth is not to be pursued alone. That, that me taking the step of church membership and saying, hey, I want to be part of you guys was my way of saying, my public affirmation of saying that I cannot legitimately grow as a Christian by reading my Bible at the coffee shop. That is, that, that is not what scripture um, gives us to grow. That's, now, spiritual growth is not uh, less than that. That could, that could be a part of it, but the commitment of church membership is saying, I realize that I need... As an individual, I need a community of believers who are around me, who are committed to the same things that I am committed to, that we worship together, that we uh, do our lives together. I need to belong to that. That is what church membership is demonstrating. We are declaring that we invite the input of others into our lives. We're saying, I welcome what you have to give me, and I want to put myself in a community of believers where I can obtain that from you. That what I need from Mirabel and Marjorie and Jerry and Jim and Julia and Alex to grow as a believer, I'm going to align myself into your community so that I might get that from you. And then I want to talk about, like, is this even biblical, right? Because you can see the concept of member and membership, um, you you know, or or like being members and being parts of a body. But you could say, well, we're, you know, this modern church membership where you go to a class and are voted in or not voted in. Like, where is that in the Bible? Where's a verse for that? And I would say, you know, just like with many things, there's not a explicit verse for that. But. The way that we do theology, right? Theology is, all, is not always explicitly communicated. Sometimes the truth is implicitly communicated. 
But what implicit means is that if the Bible says this is true, 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 these, these ten things are true, then what they all logically lead to together must be true as well. Even though you don't find a verse that says, be thou a member of a church, or much less Woodside, right? If we can find a, a handful of concepts where we can say together these look like they're pointing towards some system of membership, then you would have to say this is implicitly taught and very clearly implicitly taught in the scripture. And so some of that is the early church had records of the widows that they were ministering to. And why would they have a record of who's part of them and being ministered to if there is no concept of church membership? Who are these widows that were on their register? In Acts chapter 2, when Peter gives a sermon, right, there's 120 people, right, and someone must have counted and said, okay, there's 120 of us that believe in Jesus and believe in his resurrection. Someone's counting that number. Someone knows who's part of it, who's not part of it. Because they, uh, the Holy Spirit comes upon them, and Peter preaches his sermon, and it says that there were 3,000 that were added that day. Now, it's probably not an exact 3,000. It could have been, you know, 3,026. It could have been 2,934, you know. But it's roughly 3,000, and someone's got to be there saying, you know, okay, this is... This person, that person, that person. Someone's counting that. Someone has a rough estimate of who is added to the church. And so that, that's a prototype for church membership. It doesn't explicitly prove it. It um, just gives you some basis to say you know who's part of the group and who's not part of the group. And then think about the responsibility that I have as a believer, as part of this church, to submit to the teaching authority of our church, Right? The question I would have is, whose teaching authority do I submit to? The Bible says in uh, you know, Hebrews, you know, submit to, obey your, your spiritual leaders and your spiritual uh, authorities. Let's say a pastor walked in here after the service. said, Vijay, you know, I'm, I'm pastor so-and-so. I have a church in such-and-such town in Queens. I want to admonish you on a couple things I did not like in your service, and this happens all the time, not with people here, but we always get like, well, this person said this, and this person thought this, and this church doesn't like this. They, they might say, BJ, I did not like the Bible version that you were preaching from. I were using the English Standard Version, BJ. That's, that's, not, that's not right. They might say, I, I don't like the setup of your worship team. It's too much like a concert. There's too many instruments involved. There's a drum, and there's a guitar, and there's a piano. And you know, people actually think this way. And if a pastor walked in, my response would be, thank you for the input. And the next Sunday, we would do it the same way we are doing it now. Because I'd say we're not bound to the teaching authority of just anyone who walks in off the street. Yeah, but they're a pastor. And the Bible says to obey and submit to your leadership. Well, how do you know, you know who defines you know, my spiritual leadership? It is the body to which I have submitted to and said, I want to be part of this community. It's not just anyone who walks in off of the street and says, I have spiritual authority here. Absolutely not. We would say thank you, but no thank you, and we would proceed to do um, everything as we, we do it, because we would say we're not bound to their teaching authority, to their spiritual authority. And then is a question that, you know how the Bible says that uh, we've used this expression before that a pastor is accountable to the Lord for what they teach and what they preach, right? Um, Hebrews says that you have to give an account for the spiritual care of your flock. And so I would ask, logically, for, for whom is the pastor rightly accountable for? We say a pastor's going to 
give an account to God for what they preach. Whom is Matthew Shores accountable for? Right? Is he just accountable for anyone who walked in into Woodside and he was, he was supposed to teach them and admonish them, figure out like, um, their lives and history and, and encourage them? Or is it? Like, how do you know who you're accountable for? Right? Who you're supposed to nurture and teach and uh, admonish? Wouldn't it be those who covenant together with the community of faith and said what this church offers by way of its interaction and its worship and its teaching ministry, I submit to that and I want that in my life. And when I, when I did that and when many of you did that, in the process of membership, that is what you were saying, is that I want to avail myself of the teaching ministry of this church. And I think that's how you know. Because the pastor can't be accountable for, we're a community church, but he's not accountable for every single person in Woodside and their spiritual care. You need 100 pastors to do that, and even then, you're, you're just at the, at the tip of it. So for whom is pastor accountable, and I would argue that it is for those who covenant together in, with, with the church, in a community of believers. That is something that we should desire. Then is the question of who participates in the church discipline process, because we know church discipline was something that the early church did, and in my 20 years or so of being at Woodside since I was a kid, we have done formal corporate church discipline one time, right? And so it's not something you just do every week. Sunday morning, let's discipline some people and kick them out of church. No, it's been done one time as far as I could remember. Maybe the older members remember something previous to that, but I only remember one situation. So it's not something you just do, you know, carelessly. But who participates in the process of discipline, right? When you're voting on someone and you're saying that this person's sin is so egregious and unrepentant that they are not welcome in this church, who gets to make that decision? You've got to have a way of knowing who gets to make that decision or who not to make, who doesn't get to make that decision. And it cannot be someone who just visited this morning because if, you know, just came in as a visitor. The person might not even be a believer. They might be a skeptic. They might not be um, a Baptist. It could be anything going on, and they get to make a decision on who gets, who's, you know, who might be kicked out of the fellowship of the church community. Who gets to participate in the church discipline process? And I think because there is church discipline, there has to be a a group of people who, um, you know, who get to decide in that process or not. And I would say it's membership. And, and, And discipline can only take place if you have church membership, right? Like I can only be kicked out of Woodside if I first belong to Woodside. And then the question you might have for me, BJ, that sounds ridiculous. Why do you want to be part of a church where you can get kicked out of it? Simple answer, because then it really means something, right? It's not just somewhere I go. It's not just somewhere you go on a Sunday morning. It is something that you are a part of and you are be- that you belong to. And don't, don't you know, misunderstand the idea of church discipline. I think of church discipline as sort of like, like when I was like learning how to drive. Now I started learning how to drive with my little brother who had a car ever since he was a teenager. And learning to drive with him was terrible. It was horrendous. He would yell at me and then he would do all the wrong things and I could not learn with him. And so I learned through a driving instructor. And much of how they correct you is just eyes on the road, look at your mirror, uh, straighten up, stay in your lane, stay in your lane, stay in your lane, make this turn. And so it's just little adjustments that say, you're doing wrong, straighten up, you're doing wrong, straighten up, you're doing wrong, straighten up. And it only happened to me one time where the inspector, this is during my road test, I, I passed anyway, um, he, I, 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 I went really fast uh, entering into a residential road from an intersection with a car coming. He said I had two inches on each side. That was not true. I had like a foot on each side. He, he slammed on those brakes. 
He says, what are you doing? You're going to get us killed. And I just smiled and smirked and said, I guess I was overconfident. But, um, you know, that, you know, could easily say, you do that one more time, you're out of my driving school or whatever. Why would I want to be part of a driving school that's going to kick me out and get mad at me? Well, because that's how you learn how to drive. Right? And it's the same thing with, with church. So don't misunderstand the process of church discipline. Christ came and he gave himself up so that with his blood he might purchase um, his bride and his body that represents him on earth. That is the church. It has existed throughout history. It exists across the globe. And, in, and, and we are privileged to be a local expression of it. Paul says to the Ephesians in Acts 20, he says that you must love the church and shepherd over it because it is what God has purchased with his own blood. And that's a high calling. It, it um, should have a high regard in our lives and it should be and it is something not that we go to on a Sunday morning, but that we are a part of. And it's teaching ministry and it's discipline and it's community um, is something not only that you should desire, but it is what you need to be what God wants you to be as a Christian believer. And so with that, I invite you, let's begin that dialogue about church membership. And when we launch that class in, in a couple weeks, you are welcomed and you are invited and we would just love to have you. We would love to have members just um, reaffirm that commitment in their hearts as well. As uh, Ephesians tells us that this is not something that you go to. This is something that you are, that you are a part of. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ, who with his blood, he redeemed a people for himself. Um, he redeemed them with his blood so that when we get to the throne in the kingdom, there are some out of every tribe and tongue and uh, nation. I pray that we as a church um, here at Woodside, Lord, that we would be um, just a vibrant expression of what you want the church to be in its, um, in its beauty, in its character, in its teaching ministry, in its diversity, and in its unity. Help us to strive towards that, Lord. Um, I pray that the, that the word of Ephesians has been clearly proclaimed and um, coherently defended so that um, we might love and appreciate um, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.